Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 17. Last week, I began covering the history of the people, places, and things found in Joshua Chapter 12. In that episode covering Edri, the Mahakathites, Tapwa, and Adullam, among a few others. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing to push through the record of the people and places the Israelites defeated in Canaan, as found in a list at the end of chapter 12. And with that, let's get started. The first place I'm covering this week is found in verse 18, and that's the royal Canaanite city of Aphek, along with its king. This place in Joshua is its first mention in the biblical text, but not the last. As its first, it means that when the Israelites arrived back from Egypt, it was likely a relatively minor place. It's more well known as the place where a couple of key events occurred. The first was something I've touched on a few times. As told in 1 Samuel 4, In those days, the Philistines mustered for war against Israel. The Israelites encamped to Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped to Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of the Israelite warriors. The next day, the Israelites brought the ark to the battlefield and were defeated yet again, with the Philistines capturing the ark. Later in 1 Samuel, when Saul was king, the Philistines gathered all their forces numbering in the thousands again at Aphek, while the Israelites were encamped by the fountain of Jezreel. And the fountain in Jezreel was a natural spring. At this time, David was on the run from Saul and living among the Philistines. The Philistine commanders would send David away from the battlefield, fearful he would switch allegiances. It was at the ensuing battle that Saul and his sons were killed. Another mention of the place was when one, maybe multiple rulers of Damascus named Ben-Hadid, were defeated by the Israelites. Then, the king of Damascus, along with his surviving soldiers, found refuge after retreating, as seen in 1 Kings. Later, in 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha, just before he died, foretold to King Joash of Israel, Take a bow and arrows. So he, meaning Joash, took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. Then he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. Then he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, for you shall fight the Arameans in Aphek, until you have made an end of them. Just after this, Elisha added a little more color to his prophecy. Then he died. While that certainly leaves you thinking something will happen in Aphek, that's actually its last mention in the biblical text. Now, to be clear, there may have been a single place, or perhaps several, named Aphek. In various places in the text, it was mentioned as being a city within the boundary of the tribes of Issachar, and in a different place within the land allotted to Asher. 
Some interpret this as being two different places, where others see it as being a single place that switched hands a few times due to the moving boundaries between the tribes. And that's it for where it's found in the Old Testament. As for where it actually was located, there is a potential site in northern Israel, though the one commonly identified is on the coast and wouldn't serve well as a boundary between Israelite tribes. There is another thought, and this location relies on the contextual clues about the various battles between the ancient Israelites and both the Philistines and Arameans. This theory began to take hold in the 20th century and narrows the location down to a place east of the Jordan, which would put it well away from the coast. But from there, the narrowing of the place further would jump around from ruined city to ruined city. The first was a village near Kabutz Afik, which placed it three miles east of the Sea of Galilee. At this location, an ancient mound was thought to be the site of the city, at least until it was excavated. What the archaeologists did uncover was a village dating to between the 9th and 8th centuries BC, and it was fortified. But this was several hundred years after the Israelites arrived back in Canaan, and even long after David was king. It did, though, reveal artifacts that were likely Aramean, but given the location, this wasn't much of a surprise. As the dig progressed, the city turned out to be physically smaller than what researchers thought Aphek should be, so the theory fell into disfavor. After this, another tell became the front runner, this one on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Both of these are close enough that the text of the Old Testament works. And there's something else. If the city were in either of these locations, the battle with the Arameans would have made more sense as they would have been invading Israel from the east and attacking the Hebrews on their vulnerable eastern flank. The battles with the Philistines can be shoehorned into making the location work, but to be honest, so can almost any location in ancient Israel. And that's essentially it for Aphek. Next up is the very little that's known about Lasharon, at least as it's found in the ancient Masoretic text which was the source for most of the Old Testament, as interpreted in the King James, most of the New Revised Standard Version, and the NIV. What we do know about this location is exclusively from the biblical text and the various source documents for the many translations. The only place it's found is in Joshua 12, where we're told it's king, and therefore the army and city were defeated by the Israelites. Then, a little confusion. The Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament reads, The king of Aphek in Sharon. Many interpret this as meaning Sharon wasn't a specific city, but a region. The 3rd century AD Christian historian Eusebius wrote of a region between Mount Tabor and the Sea of Galilee named Sharuna. Maybe the same. And also, possibly the same place as an ancient ruin on a tell named Sarana, and located just over six miles, ten kilometers southwest of the lake. And that's it. 
Next, and the last place in this episode, is the king of Janium, a place said to be in Carmel. This is the Mount Carmel I covered in Chapter 7, Episode 13, released last month. As for Janium, it's found in only three places in the Old Testament, all in Joshua. Obviously, this one in Chapter 12. And the other two is part of the boundary and territory of the tribe of Zebulun though it was named as a Levitical city, so within Zebulun, but given to the Levites. It's said to have pasture land, in a wadi, meaning water and grass for livestock. Fortunately, there's much more in the outside record about the city. First, the name. Like most places in this part of Joshua, the name is Hebrew implying the name listed wasn't what it was called when the Israelites arrived, but was instead renamed to the Hebrew name found in Joshua. This name is likely, or at least partially, in reference to a nearby spring. Before the arrival of the Israelites, it was probably called, you know what, it doesn't really matter, and I'd butcher it anyway. I'll just say it was called something else. The reason they think it was called this other name is that it was found on a list of places conquered by Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III. Eusebius mentioned it as a village called Kamona. A little bit after Eusebius, the 5th century writer Jerome gave it a similar name. And both of these were in reference to Cain. Remember him from the beginning of Genesis? At the time of Eusebius and Jerome, It was thought to be the location of Cain's death. More on that towards the end of the episode. Over the next several hundred years, the name, or at least something exceedingly similar, seemed to stick. As for the place, and partly why we know so much about it, at least in comparison to the other places in this episode, are the archaeological findings at the site. It's on a tell about 200 feet, 60 meters above the surrounding area, and has a footprint of about 10 acres, 4 hectares. Within this portion was an upper city, the Acropolis, and a lower portion. Despite this small size, and possibly owing to its protective height, it would be occupied nearly continuously for 4,000 years from the Middle Bronze Age through the Ottoman Empire. The city is located in the western Jezreel Valley. This area is replete with abundant water, a moderate climate, fertile soil, all of which allow the residents to cultivate crops in the valley and herd cattle, sheep, and goats on the slopes of what are known as the Menashe Heights and Mount Carmel. Though the earliest relics are from much further back, the 4th millennium BC. The finds from this period are minimal, meaning only a few cone-shaped pottery vessels and jar handles, not even the jars themselves, just the handles. No building remnants of any sort. Though, do note that the area of ground where these have been found is a bit outside of later excavations, and there may be more artifacts waiting to be uncovered. Having said all of that, it appears that, for the period, in about the next 2,000 years, there seems to have been no permanent settlement. The first structures, 
at least those that have evidence surviving until today, date until the first part of the second millennium BC. Unlike the older pottery fragments, many pieces from this period have been dug up, including bowls, platters, cooking pots, and jars. There's also a cylinder seal with a geometric pattern, along with a stamp seal. Most of these appear to have been produced locally. What doesn't fall neatly into this category is an Egyptian diorite piece. Diorite is an igneous rock that's somewhat visually similar to granite. This piece has been dated to sometime between the Egyptian First Dynasty and the beginning of the Second. This would place it between 3000 and 2900 BC. These dates are significant, as they would indicate, at a minimum, contact, and possibly trade that early on. As a point of reference, Abraham isn't thought to have shown up in Canaan for another 1,000 or so years. Despite these finds, still no remains of buildings have been found from this period. Fast forward another 1,000 years, and to the time when Abraham would have been in the area, so from about 2000 BC, in the next 800 or so years, meaning the Middle and Late Bronze Age, Janium was a fortified city, at least between all of the raising and burning. To dive into this a little, found under the wall of Janium, at least the wall that was built between the 20th and 18th centuries BC, under this wall was a layer of burnt mud brick, pottery pieces, bones from a young male, and ash. Put all of this together, and you have evidence that the city was possibly violently destroyed by fire. Also dating to the period is a burial cave cut into the somewhat soft limestone, and burials in caves were common in the period, as the distant, but from the same period, Cave of the Patriarchs indicates. This one was different from others in the region, as it had three chambers, and also contained the skeletons of sheep. The general thought is that it was from a wealthy family, as people living on the edge of starvation didn't easily give up livestock in homage to the dead. From about this point forward, the city on the hill was protected by a wall. Well, given the cycle of construction and destruction, three separate walls, all formed by mud bricks built atop a stone base, at least until 1650 BC. Then, after the destruction of the wall, it would remain less defended for several hundred years through the Iron Age, meaning it likely didn't have a defensive wall when the Israelites crossed the Jordan post-Exodus. Just before the Jordan crossing, there was the Late Bronze Age collapse, which reverberated throughout the region. After this collapse, and a relative stabilization, the cycle of rebuilding and destruction would continue through the Iron Age. The common belief is that this constant defeat and rebuilding correlates with the warfare seen in the Old Testament. More specifically, that of the Israelites Joshua and David, followed by the ruler of Aram Damascus, King Hazael, and finally the Neo-Assyrian Empire, likely led by Tiglath-Pileser III. In the middle of this, between about 900 and 700 BC, is when the city is considered to have peaked. In that period, 
the urban area around the city extended beyond the city's walls and the tell, spilling over to the lower area below the hill. The current estimate is that at this time, when the city was peaking, it had doubled in size from the 10 acres on top of the tell for a total of 20 acres. The top of the mound sloped steeply upward from north to south, a feature which led the ancient Janium's builders to level many of these slopes, creating terraces on which its buildings were constructed. You can probably guess why the city was so prosperous in this period and occupied for so long. Obviously, its protected position on a tell and the confluence of agricultural forces were key. But there was something else. Trade. Janium is situated at the intersection of two ancient international trade routes. The primary one ran from Egypt to Syria, specifically Damascus, and even north beyond there. Another ran from the coast in the west and eastward to what would become Babylon, then Persia. Evidence of this can be seen in the pottery fragments recovered from the period. These include relics in a style that was seen as far away as Cyprus and Mycenae, along with more expected locations, such as Egypt. Also, two Egyptian-style tools were found. What's not known about these is if they were made in Egypt, or copied from Egyptian samples but produced locally. What this does indicate is that the two cultures were in contact. Also, Mitanni-styled silver earrings have been uncovered. Backing up a little, but overall, during the same period, the city was mentioned in the Egyptian Amarna letters in four separate places, though do note that the city named in the letters was different. What links Janium with this correspondence is something unexpected. The messages were written on clay tablets, and the clay that these four specific tablets are made from is found only in the region around Janium, on this side of Mount Carmel, in two specific sites, one of which is just over a mile, just under two kilometers from the city. That seems pretty conclusive. Then it gets even more interesting. As you will recall, these letters were from subject kingdoms and states to their Egyptian overlords. In this case, the leader of what's presumed to be Janium is summoned to Megiddo, along with the king of Shechem. Both were being accused by Egypt of aggression against neighboring kingdoms who were also under Egyptian rule. Sometime after this, and possibly as a result, or possibly a century later, the city was destroyed by a massive fire, all still before the Israelites arrived. After this fire, which was towards the end of the Bronze Age, the city was rebuilt. Likely, this reconstruction took place over a couple of decades between the 12th and early 11th centuries BC. At the time of the rebuilding, and according to the biblical text, the Israelites were in control of the city. There are many finds from the period, which I'll spare you, as they're a bit redundant. Of more interesting note is what's called an oil house, which is pretty much what it sounds like, as evidenced by the tools and olive pits, likely a building where olives were crushed for their oil. This building was directly connected to a cave where the dead were entombed. 
Overall, though, for several decades, the city appears to have been very poor, possibly owing to the conquest of David, until it was rebuilt in the 10th century BC. At that time, a 16-foot-wide, 5-meter stone wall was built. The wall was 13 feet, 4 meters tall. It wasn't to last, as shortly afterwards, the city was destroyed again and resettled the next century. This raising is thought to be the incident involving the Israelites and King Hazael of Aram Damascus. When it was rebuilt, a double wall was constructed. Tiglath-Pileser would invade in 732 BC as part of his broader regional conquest. At that time, the city was one of the largest in the region of the Jezreel Valley, and this is when it peaked, with a precipitous decline over the next couple centuries, which gets me to the Persian, then Greek periods. Assyria would follow the Babylon, which was followed shortly by Persia. Apparently, Janium was a minor city at this point, as it wasn't mentioned in any Persian documents, though it's likely the important areas were still up on the hill and behind the wall. Later, when the Persians controlled the area, between about 539 and 330 BC, the city remained densely populated, but seems to have been unprotected by a city wall. At that time, it appears to have been home to a diverse population. This is seen in the family names on pottery, written in Aramaic, and include names of Hebrews, Persians, and Phoenicians. Overall, and due to the consolidation of power into larger regional empires, the history of the city paralleled that of the area in general. In the beginning part of the 4th century BC, there appears to have been another fire that led to a near-complete abandonment of the city. This may be related to the wars between the Persians and Egyptians in that period. The tell remained largely deserted until Alexander the Great defeated Persia in 333 BC. About a century later, the city was reoccupied, as evidenced by significant finds of Greek pottery, including wine jars from the island of Rhodes. In that period, there was a refortification to the point that it included a watchtower. The city would come under Roman control in 63 BC and the Romans would remain, and then the Byzantines, until the Islamic conquest in the 7th century AD. Meaning that when BC turned to AD, and Christ was walking in the region, Janium was within the same sphere of influence, though never mentioned specifically in the text of the New Testament, as were few places east of the Sea of Galilee. But after the Islamic conquest, and for a yet-to-be-explained reason, the city declined, showing little evidence of any sort of occupation. Though, it wasn't completely abandoned, just largely so. The general thinking is that most of the population moved to a nearby hill to the south. This seems to be indicated by a Byzantine church found on that tell. The Muslims will conquer the city in 634 and reestablish it, and in this case, it has the appearance of being a well-planned city on the original mound, but without any significant fortifications. Over time, the population would once again move away, and then it was struck by a seemingly large earthquake in 1033, 
one that destroyed most of the buildings in the city, which likely led to a gradually declining population. Again. Then came the Crusaders, who in the 12th century refortified the city, making it the largest it had been in over 1,000 years, likely since the Israelites or one of the later occupying empires were there. But, like all things in the region, it would eventually be retaken by the Muslims, with the Crusaders being driven back to Europe. Then, in the 16th century, came the Ottomans, who would again refortify the city, this time with an 18th century fort. Napoleon conducted an expedition in the region and recorded this fort on a map of the area. Just a century later, the whole location was abandoned. Today, and owing to the surveys and archaeological excavations that have occurred over the past century and a half, the site was set aside as an archaeological park in 2007, an area that is geared towards the history those excavations have uncovered. There are also a couple of extra-biblical legends told by the locals about Janium. The first is of a Samaritan origin, and it's that Joshua camped here during the fight against the Canaanites. The other is a Christian legend that Lamech, the great-grandson of Cain, murdered his great-grandfather at the site with an arrow, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pushing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.